Hey, this is Jeff Benjamin with the Investment News Podcast. I'm here today with my colleague and good friend Bruce Kelly. We got a lot to talk about today, and this episode is sponsored by John Hancock Investment Management. Grateful to have them on board. We got a lot to unpack this week. We're going to talk about some analysis that Bruce did on fees and the impact of regulatory oversight in a potential Democratic sweep in this election. We're going to talk to a distribution expert, Michelle Fuller from John Hancock Investment Management. And we're going to wrap it up with a little bit of chatter about the 30th annual Schwab Impact Virtual Conference. How you doing, Bruce? I'm great. Thanks, Jeff. But first, let's kick it off with Bruce. You've got a cover story that drops on the same day this podcast drops. So tell us about it. I mean, a lot of good stuff in here. I did get an early read on it, what you might expect, maybe a little tighter regs under a Democratic White House and both houses of Congress, but sum it up for us. Yeah. So I went into this story, just, I like to write cover stories sometimes that are just full-fleshed answers to really simple, what I perceive to be simple questions that we don't usually get to do on our daily grind of grinding out three, four, 500 word news items, right? So my question was in the beginning of October, when I started talking to Paul Corsio, my editor on this, was, okay, so Joe Biden is ahead in all these polls, and everyone's distrusting the polls because of what happened in 2016. Hillary Clinton was ahead in the polls, and then she ultimately lost the Electoral College to Donald J. Trump. He won the presidency that way. But my thinking was, okay, so the poll, maybe the polls are true this time, and if they are true, what will happen to advisors, financial advisors, if Joe Biden gets elected, particularly when it comes down to this issue of fees. Because if you look back to what happened with the DOL fiduciary rule, which tried to get implemented under former Democrat Barack Obama, and Reg BI, which is the Republican answer really to the Department of Labor fiduciary rule, you see that advisors kind of get whipsawed by fees. <laughs> so my question was, are advisors in for another one of these whipsaws, you know, if everything gets scrambled up? with the SEC or the Department of Labor again. So I started talking to people about that. And it was really interesting because, again, it comes down to the the general answer and something that I heard on earnings calls today, too, was it's not so much about the regulation, but it's the people who enforce the regulation. So if you remember, back under DOL, big firms, I mean, we're talking about big firms, Merrill Lynch, Commonwealth Financial Network. Remember, they they said, hey, we're going to cut commissions in certain retirement accounts. You can't do commission business in IRAs anymore. That was a big to-do. That was a huge to-do back four years ago when all that was happening. A couple of years later, after the courts nullified the DOL fiduciary rule, they re-allowed commission sales into those accounts. That was a big change, man, at the time. And that really had pissed off some advisors. <laughs> some guys from Merrill Lynch left. They just left because some advisors Merrill Lynch, they just left. They walked out the door because they couldn't do, they didn't want to do business like that. I don't think it had such an effect on Commonwealth because a lot of people at Commonwealth are, are fee advisors there. What people said to me is Reg BI is pretty baked in. They don't expect a Democratic administration that's facing an economic downturn despite recent economic good news, a lot of unemployment, uh, high unemployment. And a, and a pandemic to be focused on, you know, DOL fiduciary type stuff. So Reg BI is probably going to remain. But what's the real kicker is that who's going to be in charge of enforcing it? 
And the industry's worst nightmare is to have Elizabeth Warren, the dreaded Elizabeth Warren, Democratic senator from Massachusetts, in charge of anything to do with the financial arm of the federal government, particularly as as secretary of the Treasury. And then secondly, another fear out there looming for the industry is if William Galvin, who's the head of the securities division in Massachusetts and really widely disliked in the financial services business, if William Galvin becomes, say, head of the SEC or a a commissioner on the SEC. So the heads of these big firms are are really fearful about who's going to be in charge under a Biden administration, potential Biden administration, not a change in the regulation so much. Mm -hmm. I thought that was kind of fascinating. Yeah, it is interesting. And when you put it that way, that the you're right, that who, whoever takes over or whoever is either elected or reelected, they're going to have their hands full. And the, the Democrats, you would assume, would want to make the most changes or be motivated to make the most changes on a regulatory front. But they might have too many other things in front of them. So it's kind of like you're saying, it sounds like you're saying it's, it's basically going to be status quo regulatory wise, but the leadership of the regulatory bodies is what to keep an eye on, right? Yeah. And just one thing about regulation, though, is that, the, again, the industry is fearful of greater and bigger fines under a Democrat than under a Republican. Oh, yeah. And you, you can just see that under FINRA, under its FINRA, recent FINRA reform, and under Cook, its, its more recent CEO, you know, they pulled back quite extensively just from, you know, I look at the FINRA fines every day. And, and they've really pulled back on fining firms just on a day-to-day level. And that was a big complaint from firms. So they're, you know, the brokerage and retail financial advice industry is fearful of uh, a return to a democratic ad- administration and what that means for them in Washington, D.C. All right. Well, good summation there, Bruce. I'm sure we're all going to be looking forward to reading your uh, cover story. We're going to move on go to- go out and vote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, for our next segment, we have Michelle Fuller, head of ETF distribution, John Hancock Investment Management. How are you doing, Michelle? Welcome aboard. Thanks so much for having me. I'm doing great, thanks. I think we're going to talk about your the ETF business over there. I, I, I will confess, I wasn't familiar with John Hancock's ETF lineup until I started doing a little bit of digging into this over the past week or so. But we want to hear a little bit about how you got there, first of all, because I know it's not a it's not a long history of ETFs at Hancock, correct? That is correct. That's correct. We launched our ETFs back in 2015. I joined the firm in 2016. Much of my career at State Street Global Advisors with the Spider ETFs. I was there for a while, then transitioned over to PIMCO and worked with PIMCO to expand their ETF lineup. And then uh, came over to Hancock, as I mentioned, back in 2016. So, so you weren't really there for the beginning of Hancock's ETF, but, but near beginning, correct? That's correct, yeah. Now, update us on where Hancock, John Hancock is with their, their ETF lineup. And what we, we want to kind of get a little bit of background here so we can figure out where John Hancock is headed in a, what, from my perspective, is a very crowded marketplace. Oh, it absolutely is very crowded. So. You know, Hancock follows a manager of managers model. A lot of folks know us in the insurance industry and in the annuity industry. And what you may not know about John Hancock Investment Management is that we offer several different types of products, separately managed accounts, mutual funds, 529s, and ETFs. And so 
you know, we decided to get into the ETF industry a few years ago, we knew we couldn't get in with just the traditional market cap weighted cheap beta play. That ship had already sailed with Vanguard, with State Street, with iShares, of course. And so we said, all right, how can we differentiate ourselves in the industry? How can we leverage our, as I mentioned, manager of managers model to really bring top-notch investments and top-notch ETFs to, to clients? And so you know, when I say manager of managers, I mean, we go out and find the absolute best sub-advisor for a particular asset class we're looking to represent. And that can be in a, an assortment of different wrappers. You know, ETFs have, have really become a wrapper piece. They're not just associated with passive anymore. And so we said, hey, you know what? We can bring multi-factor strategic beta products through a firm called Dimensional Fund Advisors. We had partnered with them since 2006. And we said, we have a great relationship with them. They are at the forefront and have been doing factor investing for what is now 40 years. And so you know, it makes sense really to, to bring this type of access to investors. And it really makes sense to do it in an ETF wrapper where we can provide folks with transparency, we can provide folks with lower cost, and, and obviously tradability in the marketplace too. So we've come far. You know, we, we, we're at $4.5 billion in assets. We've got 15 different ETFs across four equity as well as uh, 10 sector ETFs. And so it's been a true success over the last five years. What do you have in terms of passive? You talk a lot about the active advantages in ETFs, but a lot of people invest in ETFs for the low cost. Low cost in an index doesn't get much cheaper than that in an ETF. Do you have passive strategies? So technically, these are considered passive. They are in the strategic beta category but they are considered passive because they follow an index. Now, that index is not something like an S&P or a Russell or what a lot of folks recognize as an index. These are custom indices that were built with John Hancock and Dimensional working on them both. It's a custom index. We then manage the ETF off of that index. Now, because it has factor tilts, it has more of an active element. But for all intents and purposes, from a filing perspective, these are considered passive products. Okay, well, then let me ask it a different way. What, what do you have in, in store in terms of active? Or is there anything on the drawing board? Yeah, no, absolutely. I would say active ETFs are an area of the market we are certainly looking at. We are also looking at active non-transparent, active transparent structures. These are all structures that we recognize as absolutely critical to our development as an ETF issuer and just the marketplace at large. I made a comment earlier about how and the lines are blurring, frankly, between these different products. And ETFs have become more of a, a wrapper term. So you know, you, at this point, you can put any strategy you want pretty much in an ETF wrapper. It's just, is it going to do better as an ETF? Is it going to do better as a mutual fund? Is it going to be, do it better as an SMA? I mean, folks are launching the same strategy across all three, just so that you're, you're giving that choice to, to investors. So, well, is John Hancock doing that? Is John Hancock planning to launch more funds, more ETFs that are clones of, of mutual funds? I don't know, necessarily know that we would be looking at a clone type structure. It's funny when you look at some of the other products that have come out that are similar to existing mutual funds. It, it was never a, a perfect clone. You know, depending on when the product was launched, that can be an element. The, the underlyings a lot of times will always be very different. So you'll never have a 100% clone type product. From a product development standpoint, we recognize that active 
management is critical in the marketplace, especially in the in the fixed income markets. And so I think you'll definitely see some some differentiated product development from us in the near future. What about you mentioned active transparent ETFs? What about semi-transparent ETFs? Those seem to be the hottest thing going, at least launch wise. The first ones came out this year and I can't even keep track of how many are out there now, probably a dozen. Is that something that John Hancock's going to consider or is considering? Yeah, you know, I, <laughs> I've been in the ETF industry for 16, 17 years now, and I can't even keep track of all these launches. It's crazy. I would say we're going to research the absolute best structure for a particular asset class and a particular product we're looking to launch. So there's a lot of different choices right now for semi-transparent and you know, active non-transparent. First, we have to get the structure down that makes sense for us. Once we get the structure finalized, then we can determine which particular strategies and which particular sub-advisors make sense to launch in that structure. Okay. So, How is John Hancock, what's the, you're, you're head of distribution. How does uh, John Hancock Investment Management compete against some of these giants in this space? I mean, State Street, BlackRock, Vanguard. How do you get a toehold in there without being incredibly creative with your product line? You can't launch another S&P 500 ETF. What's the distribution strategy there? You're absolutely right. And, and I'm not going to lie. It's tough. It's real tough because a lot of folks look at ETFs and the first question they have for you is, what is the cost? So ETFs, yeah, they've, they've become synonymous, frankly, with low cost and fees and, and just that almost obsession actually with fees. And so, you know, one of the things that we learned early on is with our sales team is we cannot be asking advisors, hey, do you do ETFs? Do you buy ETFs? Do you use ETFs in your portfolio construction process? You know, we have to really lead with obviously a consultative approach, number one. We have to ask good questions. We have to lead to the product, not lead with the product per se. But outside of that, you know, we, we need to sell the strategy first. And then the fact that it's an ETF is really the icing on the cake. So it's not a matter of you know going you know and and sometimes we do go head to head with with some of the state streets and iShares, vanguards of the world. We absolutely can compete with those folks in, in the in the case of like JHMM, for example. But a lot of folks, you know, will, will kind of fall back. Well, it's only five basis points, and so you know, I think I'm going to stick with it. We're really going after many of the underperforming, tax inefficient capacity constrained mutual funds and working with advisors who know they want to add more ETFs to portfolios. And this is a way for them to really dip their toe in the water. They're not going full blown cheap beta by going to something like a smart beta or a multi-factor ETF. They're really recognizing the benefits of ETFs through that tax efficiency, the transparency, tradability elements I talked about, and still getting the outperformance, which is great. We're less going up against the three giants of the industry and more so going after some of those, those mutual funds that you know, just haven't been performing up to par. Bruce? Yeah, I mean, you know, you have four and a half billion in assets. I mean, I'm just looking at the ticker symbol for the SPY or the chart for the SPY, they have a market cap of 291 billion. That's your old shop, State Street. So obviously <laughs> you're not, from what I'm hearing in this conversation, you're not shooting to be the next SPY, but you're still building 
up the business significantly. So my questions, my question, my first question really is just about how do you do that right now? It's expensive to go out and sell these products. You have to employ wholesalers. They have territories. They travel, and they have to get their feet, their their toe in the door to the big firms, Merrill Lynch and Raymond James and LPL and all that kind of stuff. So where are you in that development? Have you hired all your wholesalers? Or if I was a wholesaler, should I be calling you or what? (laughs) You can call me whether you're a wholesaler or not, Bruce. We are absolutely building out our distribution here. First and foremost, we are not going up against, and, and nor do we expect to go up against the SSGAs, the SPYs of the world. I mean, SPY is a product and a, and a conversation in and of itself. That, that's a product, obviously, that's been around for 25 plus years. And that's a very much an institutionally traded product. I would not classify our current lineup as institutional in, in any way. These are, these are more retail-focused products, number one. From a distribution perspective, I do employ a team when fully staffed of five ETF specialists. We just hired in a new gentleman for the Southeast. So this they're all geographically placed. And these specialists work alongside our existing wholesaling force, which is, you know, if you combine external and internal upwards of 100 salespeople, they're working alongside of those folks to really drive ETF distribution. That's a lot of salespeople, a hundred. It is a lot. A hundred internally and uh, externally. And internal people handle kind of the back office operations and the order flow. And then the external people are actually out there in Atlanta or Jacksonville or Phoenix or something like that, actually meeting with advisors about the product. Yeah. Our externals are absolutely more client facing, but I tell you, our internals are very much ramping up on their client facing responsibilities as well, especially as this COVID has hit, you know, I mean, everybody's at home now, right? Everyone's sitting in front of their desk. So, you know, these folks have, have, and and I'd classify ours as some of the best in the industry. These folks are definitely talking to advisors one-on-one. They're following up on obviously anything that our external folks have talked about. And they're, they're driving the process as much as the the externals, especially in the in the era of COVID, we're we're working with and we're on all the major platforms, both broker dealer platforms as well as the brokerage RAA Schwab's Fidelity's type platforms. So we have we've been very successful in our platform placement there. We also have a strong presence on many recommended lists at some of these broker dealer firms. So that also helps our our distribution efforts. And, you know, we're very much grassroots. You know, you're talking to financial advisors. We do a lot of due diligence events. We used to hold them at the dimensional headquarters. Now they're obviously pretty virtual. We had many of them at the New York Stock Exchange. We have a great partnership with the New York Stock Exchange. We actually just did a five-year anniversary bell ringing. So that was fantastic. You know, we, we obviously partner with folks at their conferences. We host various types of webinars with partners like ETF Trends and IWI. You know, social media has become a bigger part of the equation. So we're very much posting uh, on a regular basis on LinkedIn as, and, and expanding our networks with financial advisors and, and buyers of our products. So distribution has definitely evolved, over, especially so over the last, call it, eight months. And so we're evolving with it and, and trending with it as well. And then you said you had a, this line of products have been out for five years. And you mentioned previously that you had a relationship with Morningstar. Are they starting to rate some of these ETFs? And what's that process like? Yeah, 
Morningstar has, is definitely expanding their coverage of products. For example, some of our ETFs are rated. You do need to have a three-year track record to be rated. I know I've mentioned our mid-cap product a couple of times. That is a four-star fund at this point. In terms of you know a, a analyst rating, that is coming for some of our products. We just haven't gotten the final word from Morningstar, so I'm not at liberty to mention too much there. But the fact that Morningstar has started to really pick up their coverage and their ratings of these sorts of factor and strategic beta type ETFs, I think really acts as a tailwind for the viability of the products and the overall adoption of the products. We all know that Morningstar is the go-to for many advisors and many investors, frankly, with regard to um, you know stacking ETFs and mutual funds and, and all investments against each other. So the fact that they've been at the forefront of not only education, but you know, providing guidance around uh, selection is truly a big step for the industry and for um, strategic data at large. I, I talk to enough financial advisors that I know that they don't necessarily love wholesalers, visits from wholesalers and all the other stuff. How is wholesaling going this year when you can't, I mean, the wholesalers can't stop by the offices. They're in some cases legally prohibited from stopping by offices. And a lot of people aren't in offices. Um, offices are closed. Right. I mean, not, <laughs> not all closed. offices, not all offices, though, but a lot, a lot of, of are, offices though. are closed. I, a lot of advisors are still in some kind of office. How, how do you reach these people? You're going to you set up a Zoom call. And how does an advisor accept a Zoom call when they don't really want to often see a wholesaler anyway? Uh, what's the wholesaling like right now? We're not all that bad, I promise. I, I'm not. These aren't my words. I'm, like I said, I, I, I personally, personally, never had a wholesaler come to my office. I'm just, you know, telling you what I hear out there. No, it, it, it's a lot different than it ever has been. But I will tell you that there is, as any salesperson would say, there's a silver lining to it all, right? I would say the approach has gotten a lot more targeted. You know, before it used to be in the office, especially in the wirehouses. Hey, can I stop by? You know, let's talk about baseball for 20 minutes or whatever it is, right? Now it's a matter of, if I'm going to get in front of you, Mr. and Mr. Advisor, we're going to spend 20 to 30 minutes talking about ETFs or you know, whatever it is that, that you want to talk about at that point. And so you know that when you do capture that advisor's attention, it's going to be time well spent. Um, the meetings have gotten shorter, but that's okay. They're, just, they're more succinct, they're more targeted, and it's, it's a better use of both the wholesaler's time and the advisor's time. In terms of, you know, I think it was easier to get in front of advisors when all of this kind of first hit, if you will, because it was like, oh, you know, we're just going to be locked down for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Well, now we're into this for a lot longer than we ever thought. And so we've got to get very creative. I'm talking, you know, we've done mixology classes. We've done homebrew coffee events. I mean, we're talking about motivational speakers and getting all sorts of different motivational speakers on the line. We've expanded our value add library here at John Hancock. So we actually have had a lot of success doing work with advisors around how do you present yourself on a Zoom meeting? How do you leverage LinkedIn and kind of teaching them how to improve their virtual profile and, and both from a meetings and you know a networking perspective? So like those sorts of value add pieces really resonate because you know they're kind of in the similar boat than we are. 
you know, a lot of times they can't go meet with the client or they can't go out and, and do the, the ball games and the dinners and all the things they used to do as well. So we can kind of leverage some of our experience to teach them. How about bringing in Sting or Kenny Loggins? <laughs> for entertainment. Hasn't been on the list yet, but hey, we're, we're open to anything at this point. We got to continue. Sting was playing at the Schwab. I make reference in light of that because Sting was the performer at the Schwab meeting this week. Yesterday. Yesterday, virtual meeting. And Kenny Loggins was the performer at the advisor group virtual meeting this week. They, they always tend to get some heavy hitters. Was it Cheryl Crow a couple of years ago? And they, yes. they always seem to get some of the big headliners. We, uh, we haven't been able to snag someone <laughs> of, of that caliber at this point, but hey, we're in lockdown. That's a big spend. Couple, That's a big longer. spend to get the old it stingster is. in there, you know? It, a little, little bit, just a little the bit. stingster. <laughs> you got to open the checkbook for that That's one. what I like to call them when we talk, you know, yeah, stingster. Margins on ETFs aren't that uh, that strong for Sting. Let me tell you. Hey, Michelle, I wanted to go. I wanted to go back to your connection to DFA. That's a big draw in the uh, advisor space. That's a significant connection, as far as I'm concerned. But you kind of glossed over it, or maybe I just didn't hear it correctly. But is DFA sub advising these funds, or are they? What? How's that working out? So, Dimensional Fund Advisors is our official sub advisor for the ETFs. So we worked with them for several years before the launch in 2015 to build the custom indexes. And then, you know, there is a portfolio manager at Dimensional Fund Advisors that manages every one of these ETFs. So you know, this, as I mentioned, aligns with our manager of managers model. We employ you know, 26 different sub-advisors at John Hancock Group, uh, various products that we offer. So this is this is kind of run in the mill for us. We just we chose dimensional because they are the premier manager for factor investing. They are. How much do you promote that connection? Because like I said, I admit I'm a little behind the curve on what Hancock has in the ETF space, but to me, I'm not saying I would put DFA ahead of Hancock on a label, but I would have it right up there high. Are you doing that? So we as a firm never include our sub-advisor names in any of the names of our products. And that's by design. Number one. Number two, we do Why talk is that? about it in case we ever have to fire a sub-advisor, frankly. Oh. oh. Yeah. That's interesting. So if, yeah, is is that what, common in the retail space or, or what? I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it common. We have a manager research team just the way that many advisors do and many home offices do, right? So if we chose a particular sub-advisor, and they, for whatever reason, aren't delivering on the mandate we asked them to, it is our fiduciary responsibility to then obviously make the change. And if that requires a, a removal of that sub-advisor, then we, we need to do it. So it's, it's I'm just thinking just about it as a disclosure uh, piece of information that's uh, important to investors or advisors as disclosure, because when you have sub-advisors on variable annuities, for example, you know the manager of those. Any of the folks we talk to, we are absolutely letting them know who the sub-advisor is. Right. Uh, Number one, you know, it's our our fiduciary responsibility, number one. Number two, Dimensional, as I mentioned, is so good at what they do. So, you know, we want to make sure that we are promoting that if at all possible and when possible. So that's, that, that goes without saying. And then the final question I have for you before we let you go, because I know you have a lot of distributing to do, 
as head of ETF distribution. <laughs> they're called Sting too, apparently. Yeah, there's that. Call the Stingster. Uh, tell him I, 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 I told you to call him. The Stingster. And this isn't even a fair question for you, but if you know Bruce and I at all, you know we don't care about fair questions. What took oh, Peshaw. John Hancock? Yeah. We do. What are you talking about? What What took John Hancock Investment Management so long to get into the ETF space? You know, I think it was a matter of finding the niche, finding the differentiation first and foremost. So there was a, as I mentioned earlier, we didn't want to be cheap beta. So that was going to square that away. All right, what do we want to do? We weren't ready to do active at that point because you still had full transparency element. Not a lot of portfolio managers are comfortable with that. We said, you know what? We're not necessarily ready for active yet. But there's this small window here called strategic beta. And this is an area where we really think we can add value. And so it was, it was a matter of find, doing the due diligence, finding the right sub-advisor. And if you know anything about Dimensional, they are a, a very methodical firm, much like we are. We, we kind of share that culture-wise. And so these products were worked on for several years before they came to market in 2015. So it wasn't that Hancock wasn't thinking about it and wasn't planning on ETFs. It just, it took a while to come up with, you know, the right mix, the right indexes, you know, the right approach. And, and once that happened, then we were off to the races. I wouldn't say by any means we were late to the party. I mean, you still have asset managers out there that don't even offer ETFs, which is at this point, you want to be an asset manager ready for uh, the next iteration. You, in my opinion, you absolutely have to have ETFs to be competitive. Maybe by your opinion, we relate to the game, but in my opinion, we were right on time. Yeah, Jeff, does American funds even have ETFs yet or no? Do they, Michelle? They don't. They don't. And I think uh, um, T. Well, Rowe amazing to me. recently you know, got That's amazing. It. Yeah, Wells yeah. Fargo doesn't have ETFs. There, there's a lot of firms out there that don't either that or they've just recently launched. So... You know, the fact that we've already got a leg up with a five-year track record and a, and a strong five-year track record at that is, like I said, we're not late to the party by any means. Okay. Well, on that note, Michelle, I'll let you get back to your party. Head of ETF Distribution, John Hancock Investment Management. Thank you very much for coming on the show and educating us on all things ETFs there at John Hancock. Thanks for having Thank you, me. Michelle. It was great. Thanks. That was a great session with Michelle. What do you think, Bruce? Pretty good, huh? I had no idea that John Hancock had these kind of ETFs. Yeah, I learned a lot. Let's kind of roll home right now with a little bit of an open notebook talk about the Schwab Impact Conference. It just wrapped up this past week. Yeah, this was another one of these virtual conferences, of course, Jeff, right? Exactly. It's all you get in 2020. Right. And you were you were particularly impressed, though, with it, you said, right? You know, I was. Why is that? Like a lot of virtual conferences now, we're kind of learning on the fly. We're, we're taking what were essentially a bunch of webinars and trying to turn them into a, a kind of an educational series and a revenue enhancer for some of these companies that make a lot of money at their conferences and ways to get CE credits. And, you know, Morningstar had a big one. There were a few others. Investment News, we've had a few. But you kind of knew as we go along and the companies get bigger, like Schwab, they're going to get more impressive. And I just, I was really impressed. I, I think they did it well. They had live content. They had content that was on file that you could log into and check out. Some of them were older 
sessions and older webinars and stuff like that. But, you know, I think it was pretty much without a without a hitch from what I saw as a journalist that goes to a lot of conferences. It was a totally different experience. For one reason, I didn't have to, you know, race across the country and find my way into a hotel and try and get to every session I could cover and then doing interviews and side stories and all kinds of other things. I could just sit there and at, at my desk in my office, cover a session, write about it. And I had the thing on kind of like on background all day long, both days. So if there was a session that I wasn't covering or I knew I wasn't going to get a news story out of, I could still listen to it. Condoleezza Rice was speaking at one point. Greg Valliere, who does a lot of analysis on, on elections, interesting stuff. They wrapped it up with a, a concert by Sting, or as you call Bruce, the Stingster. I know you're you're tight with him, right? <laughs> Actually, years ago, <laughs> his kids attended a private school in the Upper West Side of Manhattan where I taught way go. many years ago. Yeah, when I was teaching in high school, his his kids were like four, five, or six, and they were in the elementary school. Did you get so every autograph? time he came around, everybody everybody <laughs> got in a flutter or a quiver. This was thirty years ago, mind you, say nineteen eighty nine, nineteen ninety. So. Oh yeah, yeah. Hey, I might have been in that class thirty years ago. I was about you were four in years kindergarten. Old back yeah. Then. yeah, yeah. I was just a tyke. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, uh, a little off track there, but uh, I like I said, I I thought it was interesting. You know, this has been a kind of a weird week for Schwab. A bunch of layoffs as they fold those TD people in. Uh, try and recruit a thousand those, people. Those, they said uh, they were going to lay off right. for three percent of the come. combined. More to come, they said. More Walt to come. Mettinger said, well, what, uh, you know, what makes don't a, get too what comfortable. What makes a virtual meeting stand out, Jeff, do you think, in, in your mind? Is it the – because I was in the advisor group. I went to the advisor group meeting this week. They're a big brokerage network, you know, 11,000 advisors or so now with their merger with Ladenberg Thalman. And, you know, it's just like, you know, it's a, it was a typical, pretty standard stuff, I thought, with a couple of presentations I attended. Yeah, well – Kind of what makes it stand out, it's not so much standing out, it's like not screwing up. And don't look like we're in this foreign space staring into a camera in a blank room. I mean, it was really (laughs) smooth. I mean, the opening session, Bernie Clark talking to Walt Bettinger, they were clearly, or it looked like they were not in the same room, but they were talking, engaging. They took questions from the audience, virtual, probably emailed or text questions in or whatever. Right. And the, the segues were smooth. They had this this MC who I, I wish I could remember her name, but she was amazing. And she just kind of kept everything flowing. There was one little glitch in one session I listened to with Lizanne Saunders where the moderator was from CNBC. And I don't think she had the best Internet connection because it was a little bit of a sluggish on her end. But, but it was all there was like twenty one hundred people registered for this twenty one hundred advisors registered for this thing. And. It was just well done. I I, I don't want to you know brag too much on Schwab because I'm not on their payroll, but it, I thought they did a good job. And you know, well, Schwab I, always runs a good meeting. I think you have to say that off yeah. off the top. They generally do a really good job. They've been doing it for thirty years, as you said, which is longer than anyone else in the business, or just as long, most likely. You know, I've been to several. I've been to Atlanta, Vegas. Boston for them, and they're huge. So they put a lot of time into it. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, since this was the first one they were kind of co-doing with the TD Ameritrade advisors and people, they didn't want to most likely 
just common sense, they didn't want to screw up. I mean, they wanted it to look good. <laughs> so, yeah, you you obviously don't want to screw up, but uh, yeah, it was it was uh, what I think. In in I'm not the first one to say this, but I think going forward, what we're going to see is some hybrid approach of conferences. We're going to have you know, it's going to be fun to go there, especially if it's you know Miami in January. But also, if you can't make it, maybe there's ways you can still get some benefit out of it. Because in the past, it was always like, yeah, these sessions are, we're videotaping them and they're going to be on the website, you know, in a month. But now they can say, yeah, you can, for a smaller fee, you can watch this thing without traveling here. And you can still get some CE credits. You still get some education still get some entertainment. Yeah, it's like anything with these meetings, it's like reading the paper. I know people who get the newspaper, used to get the traditional newspaper and then save it. Oh, I'm going to read the newspaper later or, or tomorrow or something. You're not going to read the newspaper tomorrow. <laughs> You're reading the newspaper today. It's the same thing with these meetings. You're not going to go back and look at no. old video of meetings. You're going to, you have to do it now, today, immediately, you know? Yep. That's it. You're right. You're right, Bruce. Good stuff. Hey, Jeff, that was another great episode of the Investment News Podcast, don't you think? You know it. And we just want to remind everybody that this episode was sponsored by John Hancock Investment Management. We want to say thank you very much to them. And as people know, we launch on every Monday. And we also want to thank Michelle Fuller from John Hancock Investment Management. She was a great person to have on and talk to. We also want to thank Stephen Lamb, our very own tech guy, one of the best in the business, if not the best, I think. And hey, Jeff, you can find us, at, of course, at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave a review on Apple. We want some five-star reviews, people. If you're listening to this thing all the way to the end, open up your iPhone app for podcasts. Look us up, Investment News Podcast, and give us five stars, please. You can also follow us on Spotify. I know you listen on Spotify, so follow us, please. If you want to reach out to us, my colleague and cohort, Jeff Benjamin, is on Twitter. He's at Benji Writer. And of course, I'm Bruce Kelly, and I'm at BD News Guy on Twitter. So go out and vote, and we'll be talking to you next week. views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers at the time of recording and are subject to change as market and other conditions warrant. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor shall it be interpreted or construed as a recommendation or providing advice, impartial or otherwise, regarding any specific product or security. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal. There is no guarantee that a fund's investment strategies will be successful. John Hancock ETS are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC, in the United States and are sub-advised by Dimensional Fund Advisors, LP, in all markets. Foresight is not affiliated with John Hancock Investment Management Distributors, LLC, or Dimensional Fund Advisors, LP. It is important to note that there are material differences between investing in an ETF versus a mutual fund. ETFs trade on the major stock exchanges at any time during the day. Prices fluctuate throughout the day like stocks. ETFs generally have lower operating expenses, no investment minimums, are tax efficient, have no sales loads, and have brokerage commissions. Mutual funds trade at closing NAV when shares are priced once a day after the markets close. Operating expenses may vary. Mutual funds have investment minimums, are less tax efficient than ETFs. Many mutual funds have sales charges and they have no brokerage commissions.